Let's go to the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah chapter 1. <clears throat> Nehemiah chapter 1. So, we, uh, we, we were in Nehemiah chapter 4 last week, <clears throat> and we looked at the uh, first six verses of Nehemiah chapter 4. What we're going to do today, uh, we're going to kind of do a survey of Nehemiah, the first four chapters, a very quick survey. And I want to talk about some specific things from each of these chapters. So when we look at Nehemiah and the work of God's people, we're looking at an example for us. Paul writes this in his uh, letters, uh, in his letter to, the, I believe, the Corinthians, where he says, these things happen. He's talking about the Old Testament saints. These things happen as an example for us. And so God has given us his word. He's given us the scripture, not, not just to teach us moralistic lessons, but to reveal Christ to us and to reveal His plan and His purpose. And God in His grace has made us part of His plan and part of His purpose. Now remember last week, let's just look at this scripture from Nehemiah chapter 4. Flip over a page or two to Nehemiah chapter 4 and let's look at verse 6. Because this is really the theme of what we're going to be talking about. Nehemiah verse uh, chapter 4, verse 6 says, So we built the wall, and the entire wall was joined together up to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. For the people had a mind to work. It's really what I want to talk to you about today. I want to talk to you about having a mind to work. Now, when we talk about work in church, there is always the temptation to to believe because this is our human tendency. This is our, really our sinful tendency. Our sinful tendency is to believe that we are working for God's favor, that we are working for our salvation. Well, even if you say, well, I know that you can't work for your salvation because salvation is by grace through faith, but, but I believe that we are all, maybe, maybe not you, but I'm going to say this, I am tempted to want to believe that somehow my good works and the things I do are gaining me greater favor with God. And that's just not the case. Now, there are rewards. The Bible talks about rewards. And the Bible talks about the fruit of our labor. And the Bible talks about uh, our works being judged one day. It's not that our works don't matter. Our works matter very much. But our works make absolutely no difference when it comes to whether we are saved or not. Your work doesn't make God love you more. God's love is poured out upon you because God is graceful. Because God chose to love you. God didn't choose to love you once he saw that you were going to love him. God didn't look and say, well, they look like they're pretty lovable, so I'll go ahead and love them. That makes us the reason, and, and we're not the reason. The reason is God. 
The reason is His grace. The reason is because God is love. And God is light. And God is life. The Bible says we are darkness, we are sin, and we are death until God changes us. So I want to make that really clear because we're going to talk a lot about working today. And I want to be crystal clear in your mind and in your understanding that there is no work you can do to earn your salvation. There is no work you can do to make God love you more than he already loves you in Jesus Christ. There is no work you can do to make that happen. But yet, the Bible calls us to work. In fact, the Bible says in Ephesians chapter 2 where it says, you've, you've been saved by grace through faith, not of works, lest any man should boast. It is the gift of God. Verse 10 says, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand. So God has prepared works for us, and we are to walk in those works. But those works come in our salvation. Those works don't get us our salvation. But once God has saved us, once we become his, he absolutely joins us to his work and gives us the privilege to participate in his work, in his plan, in his purposes in the earth. And when we begin to understand what an amazing gift of grace that is, it, it really should motivate us and excite us that God has allowed us to be a part of what He is doing, that He has allowed us to be a part of His story. Amen? Amen. Listen, if you, how many of you guys just really didn't care for history when you were in school? Anybody? Man, I, I love, there's a few of you, I love history. How many of you just love history? I love history. Well, more than I thought. But listen, for you people that don't like history, and even for you people that do like history, if you will just think of history as not history, but think of it as his story. Read history and study history from the point of view of what God is doing in the earth to see the amazing things God has done throughout human history from the very creation and even before to bring about his plan and his purpose in the earth. When we begin to look at history, when we begin to look at life that way, we realize that nothing happens apart from God's plan or purpose. And even when we don't understand why things happen or what things happen, we can trust that God always has a plan and a purpose and he is working all of those things for his glory. And for his children, he promises that he is working all of those things for our good. Amen? All right. Well, Father, we just ask that you would open our hearts and minds today as we look into your word. Reveal the gospel to us, Father, even as we read the account of this history of the children of Israel through the eyes of the prophet Nehemiah. Father, we ask this, that you would be glorified in your church right here in Taylor, Texas right here in Christ Fellowship, that you would be glorified, that, Lord, we would see the work of God done in this city for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, let's go to Nehemiah chapter 1. And we're not going to read all these chapters. I'm going to read selected verses. So in Nehemiah chapter 1, I want to draw your attention to verse 4. 
Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 4. Actually, let's begin reading in verse 3 because it'll give you the context of verse 4. Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 3. And they said to me, the survivors who are left from the captivity in the province are in great distress and reproach. The wall of Jerusalem is also broken down and its gates are burned with fire. So it was when I heard these words that I sat down and wept and mourned for many days I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Verse 6, and here's the cry of Nehemiah to the Lord. Please let your ear be attentive to your, and your eyes open that you may hear the prayer of your servant, which I pray before you now, day and night, for the children of Israel, your servants, and confess the sins of the children of Israel, which we have sinned, which we have sinned against you, both my father's house and I have sinned. So we see here that Nehemiah hears of the great distress and the reproach of the survivors of the captivity. He hears that Jerusalem lies in waste with broken down walls and burned gates, and it makes him weep in humble repentance before God. Remember, Israel has been in captivity for 70 years. So there are people living in Babylon who've never been in Jerusalem, who've never been in the promised land. Then you have others who, who were carried away captive, and they were there once, and now they've lived for 70 years in captivity, and now they've gone back. Remember the story in Daniel? And, and at the end of the captivity, then Darius, he, he gives the decree, and, and then Cyrus, and now this is Artaxerxes, and these series of kings, they sent the children of Israel back from the captivity because that was God's promise. You can see that in Jeremiah 29. It was a letter written at the front end of the captivity, and God says, at the end of 70 years, I'll bring you back into the land, I'll reveal myself to you, and you will seek me. God's telling them what they're going to do. You will seek me. And you will find me when you seek after me with all your heart. And so when we read here in Nehemiah, we're on, the, we're on the back end of the captivity. We're at the end of the captivity, and now Israel has come back into the land. But there are still Jews in Babylon, and Nehemiah was the cupbearer of the king. Now, do you know what the cupbearer is? The cupbearer was a real important job for the king. It may or may not have been a real good job if you were the cupbearer, depending on your uh, disposition. But here's what the cupbearer did. The cupbearer would bring the food and drink to the king, and guess what the cupbearer got to do? He got to taste everything before the king did. You know why? Because if some dirty dog decided he wanted to get rid of the king and poison him, the king had a guy that would test all of his food and drink first to make sure that he was okay. And he had to come before the king every day, and he had to come with a smile on his face, with a cheerful countenance. Because I don't know how much time you've spent around kings. I haven't spent any time around earthly kings, but the Bible says you all, and we all, kings and priests to our God, right? But if you read about earthly kings, you, you realize if you if you spend any time at all reading about them, they're kind of, uh, they're kind of uh, paranoid people. 
And rightly so, because there's oftentimes people out to get them because they want to take their position. And so you didn't go before the king with a sad face because that paranoid king might be wondering what's going on behind that sad face. Is, is, are, you, are you fixing to do me in? Are you aware of a plot? Are you part of a plot? And so here Nehemiah is the cupbearer, and he hears this news about what's happened in Jerusalem and what's going on in his land. And he hears that it's in distress, and the people are in reproach, and the walls are broken down, the gates are burned, and, and it literally brings him to tears of repentance. And he goes before the Lord, and he begins to pray and fast and seek the Lord on behalf of Jerusalem and the people of God. Now, I want to stop right there, and I want you to understand something. Nehemiah was broken before the Lord, praying and fasting, not for himself. Though it involved him, he was doing it not just for himself, he was doing it for Jerusalem and for the people of God, but more importantly, he was doing it for God's glory. It distressed him that this city of God, that this people of God were in such reproach. And it broke his heart because he felt it was a reflection upon God. And because he loved God and loved the glory of God, when he heard the condition of things, it brought him to brokenness and humility and repentance, and he began to pray for his nation and for his people and for the glory of God to be restored in that city and in that people. Now remember what I said. Paul said this, the things that happened to them were examples for us. How broken. I'm going to ask you a question. You just answer in your own heart. But here's the question that I ask myself, and I'm going to ask you this question. How broken are you because of the condition of the church? How broken are you because of the condition of the nation? Are you just broken because of how it affects you personally? Are you broken because you see the distress and the reproach that has come upon a nation because of sin? And did you hear the prayer of Nehemiah? Nehemiah says, I confess the sin of the nation. I confess the sin of my father's house. I confess my own sin. Because Nehemiah wasn't pointing a finger at everybody else and saying, it's your sin that caused this. Nehemiah says, no, it's my sin that caused this. None of us are guilt-free. We are all guilty. The question is, how broken are we as we look at the condition of the church? The church, yes, as a whole, but also Christ fellowship. How broken are we when we look at the people of this nation and the condition of this nation? Because when we pray for the nation, we're not praying for some inanimate organism. We're praying for the people because the people make up the nation. When we're seeing people walk into airports and indiscriminately kill and murder, when we see and know that over 3,000 babies are murdered every day in this country and the vast majority of people probably don't really think about it, whether they are for or against it. 
when we think about the things that are transpiring, does it bring us to brokenness? Does it make us go before the Lord and pray and repent and ask God to do something? That's what it did for Nehemiah. Nehemiah wept and mourned many days, it says. He was fasting and praying before God. He prayed before God both night and day. He confessed the sin of the nation, the sin of his father's house and of his own sin. He didn't stop being the cupbearer, but in, in between his duties, this was his condition. Now, the Bible tells us when this happened, it happened in the month of Chislev, which is corresponding to our probably November, December. It happened toward the end of the year, the late fall, early winter. Now we come to Nehemiah chapter 2. In Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 1, it says, And it came to pass in the month of Nisan. That's not a car, okay? Nisan is the month in which Passover takes place. So Passover for the Jews corresponds to our March-April time frame. So we can kind of calculate that, you know, from December, January, February, March, April, depending on whether it was November to April, we're talking four to five months. So four to five months later after Nehemiah hears this news and he's broken, he's been praying now for four to five months. He's been fasting and praying broken before God, weeping, crying out to God day or night because of what's happening back in Jerusalem, because of the condition of God's people and the city of God. And in that time, it says that he came before King Artaxerxes, and he says, I took him wine and gave it to the king. <coughs> Look what it says at the end of verse 1. Now I had never been sad in the presence in his presence before. Verse 2. Therefore the king said to me, Why is your face sad since you are not sick? This is nothing but sorrow of heart. So I became dreadfully afraid, Nehemiah says. Because kings are unpredictable. You don't know what. He has the power to just send Nehemiah away and, and end his life right there. <clears throat> so I became dreadfully afraid and said to the king, may the king live forever. Why should my face not be sad when the city, the place of my father's tombs, lies waste and its gates are burned with fire? Verse 4, Then the king said to me, What do you request? And look at the response. So I prayed to the God of heaven. <clears throat> and I said to the king, If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, I ask that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's tombs, that I may rebuild it. <clears throat> then he goes on, and the king grants his request. And Nehemiah is on his way to rebuild the city of Jerusalem. Look at verse 20 of chapter 2. So I answered them, these are the enemies. So he gets there and guess what? 
When he begins to do the work of God, guess what rises up against him? Opposition. This is something we need to realize. That when we begin to do the work of God, we will be guaranteed opposition. Now you might already be experiencing that opposition and maybe you don't know why you're experiencing opposition. You might not even know that you're doing the work of God. Maybe you're just doing what you need to do every day to live and survive and you're not even thinking I'm doing the work of God. I hope I can change that thinking pattern for you or at least challenge you to begin to think differently. So remember, Nehemiah's initial response when he heard the news was prayer with humble repentance. And so what does that, what does that teach us? What's the example for us that our response in tribulation must be humble prayer and repentance before God? Our response in tribulation must be to go to God, to run to God, so we get to chapter 2 and he's before the king and he's been praying now for four or five months and what we see is that Nehemiah's prayers produced an opportunity for action. So he goes before the king and the king says, hey, what's the deal, Nehemiah? You've never been sad in my presence before. And Nehemiah becomes dreadfully afraid and he tells the king exactly he just is honest. He didn't make an excuse. He doesn't try to hide it. He says, this is what's going on, king. And the king says, what? What is your request? Right there. That was the opportunity that God created for Nehemiah. So God gave Nehemiah the opportunity to make his request. And then God gave Nehemiah favor and the king granted the request with royal authority and royal provision for Nehemiah to return to Jerusalem. We see that in verses 6 through 8. And Nehemiah is in Jerusalem three days. In verses, from verses 11 to 15, it says he gets there and he's there for three days and God put it in Nehemiah's heart to go by night and to view the city. Not tell anybody. He's just going to go by himself and he's going to go view the city, and he's going to go back to the majority of the leaders, and he's going to tell them what he sees. So he reports back to the Jews. It says in verse 17, he reported back to the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and others doing the work, and he challenges them to come together and build the wall. You see, Nehemiah went to, to everybody. He went to the most powerful, down to the laborers that were moving the rocks. And he challenged them, from the greatest to the least, to come together and to build the wall. And when that happened, resistance from the enemy came. But the response of Nehemiah, the response to the enemy, the response to the Opposition is recorded for us in verse 20 of chapter 2. So I answered them and said to them, The God of heaven himself 
will prosper us. Therefore, we, his servants, will arise and build, but you have no heritage or right or memorial in Jerusalem. Nehemiah's prayers produced an opportunity for action. And our response to opportunity and our response to opposition must be like Nehemiah's. It must be faithful and courageous action that is birthed through prayer and repentance. It was prayer and repentance that brought Nehemiah to this place that gave him this opportunity. It was God who gave him this opportunity. And Nehemiah responded in courageous faith. And we come to chapter 3. So at the end of chapter 2, here's Nehemiah's response. The God of heaven himself will prosper us. Therefore, we his servants will arise and build, but you have nothing. You have no say. You have nothing in Jerusalem. He tells the enemies. And in response to that, Nehemiah's faith and courage move the people to action. So the culmination of Nehemiah's prayers, his courage to seize the opportunity God presented, and his bold action moved the people to rise up and build. And chapter 3 records all of the different tribes and the heads of the, the households and the heads of the tribes rising up and building. Verse 1 says, Then Eliashib, the high priest, rose up with his brethren, the priests, and built the sheep gate. They consecrated it and hung its doors. They built as far as the tower of the hundred and consecrated it, then as far as the tower of Hananel. Nehemiah's faith and courage moved the people to action. This is important for us, church, because God will use our faithful and courageous actions to move others to rise up and act faithfully and courageously. <clears throat> it's like, you know, if you've, you've ever seen, I'm sure you've seen this in movies. You see this epic battle scene. And they're all going clashing in the battle. And all of a sudden someone says, retreat, retreat. And they start running away. And pretty soon, people that are fighting are watching these guys run away, and guess what happens? Pretty soon, they're all retreating. Or maybe you've seen this, where they're all retreating, and then someone just takes a stand and says, don't run, guys. Stand and fight. And, and that person, that one person stands and fights. And other people that are running away, they, they look and they see this person standing and fighting. And they come and they join him and soon the tide is turned and instead of retreating, they're standing and fighting and at the end of the day, they win, they win the day. They win the battle. Your faithful and courageous actions, God can take those and move others to rise up and act faithfully and courageously also. That's what happened with Nehemiah. Nehemiah inspired his faith and his courage inspired the people to rise up in faith and courage also. So we come to Nehemiah chapter 4. And in Nehemiah chapter 4, we see that the people's action 
The people's actions moved the enemy to opposition. So Nehemiah says that, and he says to the enemy, we're going to build anyways. But guess what? The enemy didn't say, well, I guess we're going to go away because Nehemiah doesn't want us here. They did exactly what we see the devil do with Jesus. So you go to the Gospels and you read the account of Jesus being led into the wilderness in his temptation. And the devil comes to Jesus three times. And Jesus each time rebukes the devil with the word of God. Why is it important for you to know the scripture? Because the scripture is the sword of the spirit. The scripture, it's not going to be your yelling or screaming. It's not going to be your your big badness because you have no big badness. What's going to happen is the word of God will cause the enemy to flee. It's exactly what Jesus did. Hey, if you are the son of God, turn this turn these rocks into bread. Jesus said, the scripture declares man shall not live by bread alone, but by every mouth that proceeds from the word of God. And each time Jesus answered with the scripture, but if you read it closely, it says the devil left and went away and he waited for a more opportune time. The enemy may leave you, but he's going to come back because he is opposed to the work of God. We're 2,000 years on the other side of the cross. The Bible says our enemy is defeated, but, but he is still active. We don't have to worry about whether the enemy's going to win. We already know his fate. And that should give us courage to act, courage to take a stand, courage to enter into the work of God. But we also need to enter in wisely, understanding that we will face opposition. So the people's action moved the enemy to opposition. But the enemy's opposition moved the people to greater determination with greater cooperation. So you read these verses and you see how they begin to order the tribes and order the families and they were all working on their section of the wall. And then the enemy came and what did the enemy do? The response and success of the people to rise up and build brought the response of the enemy to oppose their work. And the response to opposition... And overwhelming work must be determined by faith and divine divine inspiration. So Judah comes and he says the strength in verse 10, chapter 4, verse 10. The strength of the laborers is failing and there is so much rubbish that we're not able to build a wall. And our adversary said they will neither know nor see anything till they come into their midst and kill them and cause the work to cease. Not only is the work overwhelming, it's so overwhelming we, we can't even hardly work and move among the rubble, but, but now these guys are saying any moment they're going to come upon us and they're going to initiate this terrorist attack and, and they're going to kill us and stop the work. And the people are fearful. They're overwhelmed. And this is the strategy of the enemy. A rise to action for the kingdom will elicit opposition from the enemy. We need to know that. The enemy will use intimidation to create doubt and fear in an effort to stop the work of God. You need to know that. When the work becomes overwhelming and the threats of the enemy alarming, discouragement can set in. We need to guard against that. Success in God's work is based on faith, not fear. It's based on divine divine inspiration, not human motivation. 
Men can motivate you all day long, and you can get motivated and be really excited, but if you're not divinely inspired in what you're doing, if you're not doing it for the glory of God, by the grace of God, and it's just out of your own resources, you're going to run dry. Your resources will run out. God will fight our battles, but he often does so as we stand prepared holding our sword. If you read chapter 4, verses 13 through 17, the Bible says they were standing there with a tool in one hand and a weapon in the other hand. But God gave them victory. God didn't allow the enemies to come. But they didn't just say, well, you know, guys, God's not going to let the enemy do anything to us, so don't worry about it. No, they were prepared. They had a weapon and they had a tool. And they were building and they were ready to go to battle any moment. And that is an important lesson for us, that we need to be ready to fight our battles, but we need to know that it is God ultimately that will give us the victory. And they said, this, was, this is exactly what Nehemiah said in verse 14, don't be afraid. Remember the Lord, great and awesome, and fight for your brethren, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your houses. So here's what we take from that. Our work must be met with greater determination and greater cooperation with a readiness for battle. Though prayerful, through prayerful, faithful, and courageous action with hard work. Someone said this once, discipleship is not complicated, it's just hard work. What God calls us to is not complicated, but it is absolutely hard work. Through prayerful, faithful, courageous action with hard work, we will, by God's grace, accomplish the work God gives us. So the work that God has called His church to, the work that He's called Christ's fellowship to, is a work of building up Jerusalem. Remember? So we have Jerusalem throughout the Old Testament, the place God's chosen His name to dwell forever, the place they all gathered for the feast. But we get to the book of Revelation and we see this vision of a heavenly Jerusalem coming down out of heaven. And the angel says to John, Come here and I'll show you the bride of the Lamb. And I saw descending the holy Jerusalem. What did Jerusalem in the Old Testament always represent? It represented exactly what it is revealed to us in the revelation of Jesus Christ. It is the people of God. It is the church of God. It is, you are the city of God. You are the people of God. You are the bride of Christ. You are the holy Jerusalem. You're not in heaven yet. Well, you are. You have a place there, but you're sitting here. But one day, the Bible says, heaven and earth are going to come together. The holy Jerusalem, which is a picture of God's people. So when Nehemiah is building up Jerusalem in the Old Testament, what is it a picture of? It is a picture of Christ building his church. It is a picture of the holy Jerusalem, the people of God being built up. This is our work, church. This is what we're called to. We're called to build up Jerusalem, to build up 
the body of Christ. It is the work of making disciples. It is the work of proclaiming the gospel with words and with deeds through our lives, touching the lives of others. It is the work of loving as Jesus loves us. It is forgiving as we have been forgiven. It is giving as we have received. It is giving His grace, giving His mercy, giving His compassion, giving His correction, His truth, and His love that will change and transform hearts and communities. The work God has called us to is the work of building. It's building and establishing families, strong families, raising children, being biblical husbands and wives, fathers and mothers, friends and family. It is the work of building trust by doing our jobs well, of being the best employees or the best employers or the best volunteers. It is being a Christ-like brother or sister. It is giving sacrificially to God and to others because God has given Himself and sacrificed for us. It is the work of building. It is the work of building faith, of building character, of building hope, of building opportunity, even building buildings. We're going to build a building, I'm hoping, in just a few weeks we're going to break ground right next door and build a 4,000 square foot building that will house our after school program in a, a university, a, a, a place for senior citizens to come, and a parish nurse program that will hopefully be a blessing to East Williamson County. How did that happen? We don't have the money to build that building. God gave us favor and somebody granted us the money and literally came and asked if they could build a building on our property. So yes, even building buildings is the work of building. They were building real walls and real temples here in Nehemiah's day. But that building represented something much more than brick and mortar. It is the work of building all of these things. It is the work and the effort to build people and to do all of this for the glory of God. Christ fellowship is the work God has called us to. Christ fellowship, Taylor, is our Jerusalem. It is a spiritual work that takes on many forms and some of these forms may not seem obviously spiritual. Please don't compartmentalize your life. Please don't segment your life into secular and and sacred, spiritual, and natural. Please don't do that. It may be, listen, this work that God's called us to that is very spiritual may be a basketball game between sixth graders on a Thursday afternoon. It may be Bible study on Sunday morning or Wednesday night. It may be planting a tree or a garden. It may be feeding the hungry. It may be fixing a toilet. It may be cooking a meal. It may be changing a diaper. It may be time in prayer or time in fasting. It may be getting to work on time and leaving late. It may be driving a nail or driving a car. It may be building a house, or it, but it's all building the church. Do you see that? Every diaper these mothers of little ones change is a diaper that goes to contribute to building the church because those babies are the church. We've got to see this, church. We've got to see this, that when, when you get to work on time and do a good job, you're building the church. 
because you're having character built in you and you're demonstrating godly character to those around you. Do you see the work of God is all around us? It comes in every shape and size and color. It comes day and night, seven days a week, 365 days of the year. It does not punch a clock and neither do you as a follower of Jesus. Your calling is eternal. It is without any breaks or vacations or time off. Once you belong to Jesus, you never stop belonging or being a disciple. And thankfully, God will not allow you to stop once you belong to Him. Our power and our ability to follow Him and to do His work in faith comes from Him. It does not come from yourself. Christ's fellowship, I'm talking to us. There is a work to do. Here's the question, are you up to the challenge? Are you ready for the opposition? Are you prepared to work with a tool in one hand and a sword in the other? Here's your weapon. Do you know how to use it? Do you know about it? We become very proficient with all kinds of things. How proficient are you with this? There is no weapon, there is no tool, there is nothing you will ever possess more important than this right here. Because this is a reflection of what is in here. This teaches you, reveals to you the reality of what God has done in your heart. What He has prepared for you in all eternity. Not knowing how to use your Bible is like being sent into battle and telling the enemy how well you can use your gun, the only problem is you don't have one. Do you feel the need to go to God in prayer and in fasting and humble repentance and to confess the sins of our nation, the sins of the church, your church, this church, your house, yourself, like Nehemiah did? Like Nehemiah, our work begins in prayer. There is much work in 2017. The work of building our Jerusalem is underway. It has been underway. We've just come and joined that work. But we're called to be faithful, to work diligently and courageously on our part of the wall in our part of the city. And we must work remembering the Lord great and awesome we must work and fight to see the city built for who? For our brethren, for our sons and for our daughters, for our families and for our households, for those that are coming after us that will be here long after we have passed. We celebrated Nadine's life yesterday here. And I promise you, there were countless prayers that that woman prayed over her 73 years of life on this earth that laid a foundation and prepared a way for not just for those who knew her, but for those that will come after her that don't even know she ever existed, but her prayers made a difference. That is what our life needs to do. This is our mission field. This is the land that God has given us. This is the land God has put us in. We're called to be good stewards over the work 
of God here in our land. We're called to do our work faithfully and courageously and do it well for the glory of God. Do you have a mind to work? I pray that you do. And the work is to build Jerusalem, to build the body, to rise up, to be a shining witness to God's glory and God's grace in Jesus Christ, to rise up in love and give yourself to God's work for God's glory, that you would purpose to be a people ready for the work. Nothing will be accomplished apart from God's grace. Nothing will be accomplished apart from His power working in us to accomplish His plan and His purpose. Jesus said in John 15, apart from me, you can do nothing. So when we talk about the work of God, I want you to understand, apart from God, you can't do anything. I can't do anything. And God's not asking us to work apart from Him. God is asking us to work in unison, joined to Him, to His life and to His power. So when we realize that apart from Him we can do nothing, we can take no glory for what He is doing. But we are absolutely privileged and we should be joyful to play our part and fulfill our role in His work. And He made that possible by His work on the cross, by His finished work. We come to this table. We're going to get ready and come to this table now. And when we come to this table, we come celebrating that work. The work of Jesus on the cross, his finished work of redemption to build holy Jerusalem, the church. We come and we eat, we celebrate, we eat of his body and drink of his blood and proclaim his death and his life even until he comes again. So I want to invite you, church, as you trust in Jesus, come to the table. Come as a member of the church, as a member of the community of God. You don't have to be a member of Christ's fellowship church. But are you a member of the body? Are you part of the community? Do you count yourself part of the community of God, part of the people of God? Come to this table. If you've never trusted Jesus, trust Him. Call upon Him. You say, is it that easy, Pastor Jeff? Yes, it is. When God gives you a new heart, from that new heart, you will cry out in faith and call upon the Lord. And the Bible says, anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Call upon Him. Trust in Him. Come to the table, church. Here's my charge to you, church. That you would purpose to be a people who go to God in faithful, fervent, and humble prayer on behalf of the church and the city. That you would purpose to be a people who seize the opportunities and overcome the opposition through prayerful, faithful, and courageous action.
that you would purpose to be a people God would use to inspire others to rise up and join in the work of building His church and building His kingdom and building His people. That you would purpose to be a people spiritually and naturally prepared for work and for battle. Prepared to apply greater determination and greater cooperation with greater innovation to accomplish the work of building that God has called us to. I want you to believe that great things are ahead in 2017. Great things are ahead in the work that God has for us all to be a people ready. I charge you to be a person ready. Do you understand that? In order for us to be a people ready, each of us must be a person ready. I pray that you would seek for God to make you a ready person. Then seize the opportunities that will put that would put you in a position to be used by God to inspire others, to build up His body, the church, and to work for the good of the city. Not just the heavenly city, but this city that we live in and that we would do this in all things for His glory. May His grace and His power fill you and equip you for the work of His church to His glory. Amen.